Well, good afternoon, and it is good to see you back. Thank you for coming. I want to invite you to take your Bible and join me in the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to study from verse 16 down through verse 22. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, down through verse 22. Spiritual exercises to make you strong. Paul writes, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. The human body is a remarkable creation of God. As Psalm 139 makes so clear, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Any book on anatomy or even an encyclopedic article on the human body will tell you that to maintain good health and the well-being of this marvelous gift, there are three things that are essential, rest, diet, and exercise. And it is the last one that particularly interests me. Again, if you go to a book on anatomy or an encyclopedia, you'll discover that uh, there's a lot said about the essential nature of exercise and fitness. In fact, I discovered in my research that there are a variety of different kinds of exercises that uh, your body needs. You need strength fitness, endurance fitness, anaerobic fitness, speed fitness, orthostatic fitness, and even relaxation fitness, which I hope that you will not partake of this afternoon. No, the human body, like any living organism, must be used or it will lose both its structure and its function. As the saying goes, if you don't use it, you lose it. What is true about physical health is even more true, I believe, about spiritual health, Uh, the inner person, the spiritual being. It requires attention. It requires exercise if it is going to be healthy and productive. It needs to be trained if it's going to be finely tuned for efficiency in the Christian life, but also in the ministry to which God may have called us. Thus, we all need to regularly be engaged in spiritual exercises, certain disciplines that God admonishes us to adopt. Well, in our text this afternoon, you will discover no less than eight exercises that Paul says will make us strong and indeed will enable us to be physically fit, spiritually fit for the assignment to which God has called us. Now these exercises are very interesting in the way that Paul discusses them. First of all, they're given in short, pithy commands. In fact, each of the commands is in the form of an imperative. It is a word whereby God is telling us to do something. He is commanding us to do something. He's not asking or suggesting. These are commands from the Lord. Secondly, every one of them is in the present tense. So each of these exercises is calling for constant, continuous, ongoing action. Furthermore, if you look at the original text, you'll discover that Paul does something unusual. He locates the verbs at the end of each command, and he precedes it with a modifier. 
In other words, by putting it out of order at the end, he actually adds strength to his command and gives it an emphatic emphasis that I believe God clearly wants us to have. Also, I believe you will see this. When you look at the first three verses, 16, 17, and 18, it appears that these particular exercises give attention to the inner life. But when you look at the commands in verses 19 through 22, it appears that they are focusing more upon the life of the church when we gather for corporate worship. So inwardly and outwardly, individually and corporately, Paul is providing for us exercises that will enable us to be spiritually strong for the Lord. Now, here's what I'm going to do this afternoon in my time. I'm going to locate prayer in the midst of these other seven exercises. In other words, I'm going to show how prayer fits into these eight commands. I'm also going to show you how I think prayer influences almost all of them, but certainly several of the other commands. And then what I also want to show you is that I believe ultimately prayer on the one hand and preaching on the other provides something of an umbrella under which all of these exercises can function and be exercised appropriately and fully. It's interesting to note that each chapter in 1 Thessalonians, all five of them, end with a comment or end with teaching on the second coming of Christ. It's one of the reasons that we talk about First and Second Thessalonians being eschatological epistles. And yet what Paul does here is he is telling us how it is that we should live day in and day out in light of the sure and certain coming of the Lord. In other words, as we look forward to his coming again, this is how we ought to conduct ourselves day in and day out until that day comes to fruition. So we're going to walk through them quickly. I'll spend a little bit more time on prayer than the others. So exercise number one in verse 16, Paul says, rejoice consistently. He simply says in the English text, rejoice always or always continually rejoice. Of course, Paul is fond of the subject of joy. It occurs more than two dozen times in his letters. It's the dominant theme of the book of Philippians where he tells us in chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, Paul teaches us that there is no contradiction between rejoicing on the one hand and experiencing sorrow on the other. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10 reminds us that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And of course, we also know from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 that joy and rejoicing is actually one of the fruits of the Spirit. Paul says, always rejoice. He uses that word four other times in this particular letter. It simply means on every occasion or in every set of circumstances. And of course, it is good for us to remind ourselves this afternoon of this basic truth. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Joy is not based on the situation in which we find ourselves because some situations are indeed bad. Some situations are painful. Some situations are hurtful. Joy is based rather on the fact that we are in Christ and, as he says in verse 18, that what we are experiencing right now, no matter what it is, is the will of God for us. 
One of the amazing things about following Jesus is we can experience joy even when we sorrow. So he begins by just simply saying, rejoice consistently. But then secondly, he tells us also to pray unceasingly. Again, verse 17, two words, pray without ceasing. J.B. Lightfoot says, quote, It is not the moving of the lips, but an elevation of the heart that the essence of prayer consists. Now, I personally believe there is an intimate connection between verse 16, where he tells us to rejoice always, and verse 17, where he tells us to pray without ceasing. Why? Because I believe that continual, consistent, unceasing prayer will almost always produce a joyful heart. You see, a heart full of joy is the result of a heart free from burden. And a heart free from burdens is a heart that is regularly and consistently comforted by prayer. John Calvin, in commenting on this verse, says it so very well. By prayer, we disburden our anxieties, as it were, into his bosom. Being cast down and laid low, we are raised up again by prayers because we lay upon God what burdens us. As, however, there are every day, nay, every moment, many things that may disturb our peace and mar our joy for this reason. He bids us pray without ceasing. Now, this verse is perhaps as much as any verse in the Bible subject to misunderstanding, and therefore, rather than being an encouragement, it is too often a discouragement. People read this verse, and on the surface, they think, what in the world is Paul commanding us to do? I'm supposed to be in prayer 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, By some miraculous means, I'm to be engaged in moment-by-moment, second-by-second prayer. That is, of course, an, an impossibility, but it also fails to grasp both the spirit and the intent of the text. So what is it exactly that Paul is trying to tell us when he says, I want you to pray without ceasing? Simply this. He says and wants prayer to be a regular habit of our lives. It is something that we are consistently doing. It is something that we are constantly doing. It is simply a a regular habit, or maybe even better, prayer is just a close companion of your life. Actually, we see Paul practicing in this letter exactly what he is asking us to do. Go back for just a moment and just look at chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, and look at what Paul writes there. We give thanks to God always for you all, look at it, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. I like to compare it to this. I believe prayer is something like a spiritual breathing exercise. We inhale when we listen to the voice of God in His Word, illuminated by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But then we exhale as we speak back to the Lord, telling Him what is on our heart. I was saved as a 10-year-old boy, but maybe like many of you, I did not really walk with the Lord as a teenager, much to my shame. But when I was 19 years old, the Lord really got a hold of my life. And I can still remember 
uh, going with a student group up into the North Georgia mountains for a weekend retreat. And our student pastor said, I want you to do something that maybe you've never done before. I just want you to go out, find a place in the woods nearby, and for the next hour, I just want you to spend time in communion with the Lord, praying and reading His Word. Well, honestly, I don't think I'd ever spent more than 10 minutes doing that with the Lord up until that point in my life. But I went out there, and I did what I had been instructed. And I have to tell you, something happened at that particular moment in my life that transformed me forever. In fact, I would say to you that coming out of the woods, I had recommitted my life to Christ, rededicated my life to Christ. Now, I know that we live in a day and time where we hardly ever talk anymore about rededications and recommitments, and I don't think we're the better for it. I don't think we're the better for it. Because I know that in many ways, my rededication at the age of 19 was more life-transforming than my conversion. It just was for me. I was older. I understood more. My gratitude for the grace of God in Christ uh, was so much more well-comprehended. And bottom line, uh, brothers and sisters, coming out of that weekend, I just kind of fell in love all over with Jesus. And because I fell in love with him all over again, I just wanted to kind of be talking to him all the time. And so for the next six to seven months, if I was in my car driving to college where I was going to school nearby, I didn't turn on the radio. I just talked to Jesus, just like I'm kind of talking to you right now. I get up in the morning, and I would just talk to Jesus. And throughout the day, I would just talk to Jesus, and it just was kind of like that for several months. And I have to tell you, looking back, it was some of the most glorious, wonderful, blessed months of my life. And then something along the way changed that. And it wasn't that I quit praying, but I quit talking to Him like He was not just my Lord. He was my best friend. And I really think what Paul is trying to get at in these verses is we should just be talking to our Savior, talking to our God like we would just talk regularly to a best friend who's sitting there beside you because after all, he's not just sitting there beside you, he's residing inside of you. And I realize there is a right place to get aside quietly Get on your knees and just have a very deep, concentrated period and time of prayer, whether it's 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, three hours. But I think there's also something for us just to be in regular, normal, ongoing conversation with our Lord, just like we are breathing the air right now in this room. Paul, I believe, and we heard this earlier today, would say when it comes to your prayer life in particular— uh, begin with praise before you move to petition. Always acknowledge God for who He is and what He has done for us. And then from there, you can move into making your request. And how do we make our request? Well, I'll just let Jesus speak to us from the Sermon on the Mount, not in chapter 6 as John did, but moving over into chapter 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those 
who ask him. Now, there are a number of ways that I could go in terms of application, in terms of praying without ceasing, but I want to just give attention to one in particular that is close and dear to my heart, and that is the Great Commission. I have, in the last several months, probably now going close to a year, have developed kind of a rhythm that's been new to me, but I've really enjoyed it, so I intend to keep it up in the days ahead. I, I did it this morning. Uh, when I get up in the morning, uh, I always get a big giant glass of iced tea and two Diet Cokes, which is my breakfast every morning, the breakfast of champions, by the way. And so I will drink my glass of iced tea and my two Diet Cokes, but I go into my study, and uh, the first thing that I do is I pull off a Baptist hymnal, and fortunately there's no one else around. I sing a hymn to the Lord every morning out of that Baptist hymnal. In fact, just last week I sang, Jesus paid it all, and I'm trying to work my way through the hymnal, but some of the hymns are so precious to me, I, I'm cheating and going back to some of them two and three and the fourth time. So I do that. Uh, then the second thing I do is I read the scriptures. And then the third thing I do every single morning is I read the Joshua Project's Unreached People Group of the day, every morning. Every single morning, no matter where I am in all the world, I get this every morning. So today, we are praying for the Manahar in India. 645,000 of them, not one single believer in that people group. Now, I want to tell you something. It will change your perspective on life if every day you're thinking about the massive lostness of the world. And when you realize just how massive it is, it drives you to your knees because you know we cannot possibly reach all of these people unless God wills it and God does it. But I also know that God has determined that one of the means whereby he extends the gospel is through the prayers of his people. Perhaps no one has taught us more in this area than the wonderful prayer warrior Andrew Murray. And in his book, The Ministry of Intercession, in the context of the Great Commission, this is what he said. Christ actually meant prayer to be the great power by which his church should do its work. The neglect of prayer is the great reason the church has not greater power over the masses in, heathen, in Christian heathen countries. Let us take time then to seriously consider this need. Each Christless soul will go down to utter darkness, perishing from hunger, even though there is bread to spare. Unknown millions of souls are dying without the knowledge of Christ. Christians all around us are living a sickly, feeble, and fruitless spiritual life. Surely, there is a need for prayer. Nothing but prayer to God for help will avail. Now, folks, I cannot explain how prayer can move a sovereign God, but that is what the Bible teaches. And in some mysterious way, when I pray, God acts. And when I pray, it matters. And to think that my prayers as a finite human can move an infinite and sovereign God is a mystery, no doubt about it, but it is Bible truth, and we should avail ourselves of this wonderful privilege and essential exercise. A.B. Simpson was right. Prayer is the mighty engine that is to move the missionary work. And A.T. Pearson said, every step in the progress of missions is directly traceable to prayer. 
Our God is a listening God. And if he is always listening, then we should always be praying. And so we pray without ceasing. Number three, we should give thanks comprehensively. He says in verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Gordon Fee says, continual prayer is the ongoing reminder that God's children are always and wholly dependent on their Heavenly Father for all things. It is also in this context that they are in all circumstances to give thanks. So I believe there is again an intimate connection between praying without ceasing and giving thanks in all circumstances. Now again, let's be honest, this is a very difficult command to obey. And in fact, I would argue that this particular verse demands our most careful reading and exegesis. And if you read the commentaries on this verse, almost without exception, they will point out the crucial word in, I-N. We give thanks in all circumstances. We do not give thanks for all circumstances. Furthermore, we can give thanks in all circumstances because this is the will of Christ Jesus for you. In other words, we are able by the ministry of prayer, I believe, to give thanks in all things, but not necessarily for all things. There's some things we ought not to say thank you for. There's some things that are not good. They're not bad. They're evil. They're wicked. They're sinful. And yet the Bible says in all things, our God is working His will in our lives. That's why in my notes I say this is where you have to call to our aid the Romans 8.28 perspective. And I like the way Leon Morris puts it. When a man comes to see that God in Christ has saved him, everything is altered. He now realizes that God's purpose is being worked out. He sees the evidence in his own life and in the lives of those about him. This leads him to the thought that the same loving purpose is being worked out even in those events which he is inclined not to welcome at all. When he comes to see God's hand in all things, he learns to give thanks for all things. Tribulation is unpleasant, yet who in the midst of tribulation would not give thanks when he knows that the Father who loves him so greatly has permitted that tribulation only in order that his wise and merciful purpose might be worked out. John Calvin likewise adds a very helpful word. For what is more fit or more suitable for pacifying us than when we learn that God embraces us in Christ so tenderly that he turns to our advantage and welfare everything that befalls us. This is a special remedy for correcting our impatience to turn away our eyes from beholding present evils that torment us and to direct our views to a consideration of a different nature, how God stands kindly affected toward us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, for a lost person to say thank you in everything is foolish. But for a child of God to say thank you in everything, that is faith. God says give thanks comprehensively. Number four, 
The Bible says, desire the Spirit fervently. Verse 19, do not quench the Spirit. Literally, the Spirit, not quench. Uh, Of course, that word quench means to put out. It's the only time, by the way, in the New Testament where this word is used in a metaphorical kind of sense. Now, we need to make sure our pneumatology is in line here. A believer cannot lose the Spirit. That is not possible. But a believer can quench the Spirit, and a believer, according to Ephesians 4.30, can also grieve the Spirit. Question, might a lack of prayer throw cold water on the Spirit's flame in our lives, but also in our churches? In other words, to quench the Spirit is to extinguish or stifle or restrain or stop His activity and power in our lives. Now, again, let's be very honest. The church has always struggled to get right the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We've always struggled in this area. It's not new to our day and time. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, lamented in his day, there are two extremes about spiritual gifts. Cold indifference or wild excess. I would argue we must avoid both. We must never forget the fact that the Spirit is a grace gift of God received at salvation. We must never forget that as 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19 teaches that we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Amazingly, God desires and has chosen to reside in us through His Spirit. James chapter 4 and verse 5 teaches us that the Spirit who dwells in us yearns after us jealously. So in a passionate response, we should long for Him. We should desire His full and unhindered activity in our lives. I would say it this way, better to want more of the Spirit than less of the Spirit. Now again, I'm a Baptist. So I recognize just saying that makes me a little squeamish and and a little nervous, but I need to get over my squeamishness and my nervousness just because some of our charismatic neo-Pentecostal brothers and sisters have messed up the doctrine doesn't mean we should neglect the doctrine. And I'm absolutely convinced that a consistent prayer life will go a long ways in helping us keep biblical balance when it comes to desiring rightly the Spirit of God. Number five, we are to honor prophecies properly. Verse 20, do not despise prophecies. Now, I think verse 20 is naturally related to verse 19 because one way we may quench the Spirit is by treating as nothing or despising prophecies. In fact, B.H. Carroll, the president of Southwestern Seminary in his uh, book, The English Bible, uh, said, do not hold in contempt these utterances. Now, if you study the doctrine of prophecy in the Bible, you know that it involves both foretelling and also future-telling. But the predominant use and service to the people of God was the foretelling ministry. Now, again, it's interesting when you study this particular doctrine, it was something that both men and women could do in corporate worship. Go see Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10 teaches us it is a gift of the Spirit. Now, I want to be fair here. Though I do think that prophecy in the New Testament 
is similar to preaching today. It is not identical. It is not identical. You say, well, you know how to, how to nuance that and how to... No, I don't. No, I don't. In fact, anybody that says to me they perfectly understand the gift of prophecy, I think either they're an idiot or a liar, okay? I don't think any of you are that smart. Uh, I think there's enough uh, mystery about it that I am willing to grant a little uh, grace maybe a lot of grace in this area and make sure that I judge everything as I'm about to be told in these verses according to the Word. But evidently in the Thessalonica in the first century, preaching and prophecy was suffering some disrespect and was suffering that like it is today in the 21st century. We don't know exactly what the problem was. Was it false prophecies? Maybe. Unimpressive preaching? Maybe. Uh, was the gift not spectacular enough for some people? Maybe. Was it too spectacular for others? Maybe. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that the proclamation of the Word is always the power of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. We know that the proclamation of God's Word convinces and it convicts. 1 Corinthians 14, 24. And we learn from 1 Thessalonians that it comes in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. Again, I think Calvin helps us very much as he paints a picture of his own day. Quote, many feel disgusted with the very name of preaching as there are so many foolish and ignorant persons that from the pulpit blab out their worthless contrivances. That's pretty good. And let's read that one more time. Many feel disgusted with the very name of preaching, as there are so many foolish and ignorant persons that from the pulpit blab out their worthless contrivances, but he doesn't stop. But the Lord declares in this place by the mouth of Paul that the course of doctrine ought not by any faults of mankind or by any rashness, or ignorance, or in fine, by any abuse to be hindered from being always in a vigorous state in the church. And therefore the Bible says we are to honor prophecies properly, and honor them we must. Number six, live life wisely. Live life wisely. Verse 21, but test everything. The Bible says, as we just read, we're not to despise preaching, prophecy, the proclamation of God's Word by the prophets, but then that raises the question, does anything go? Are we to be open to everything, exercising no discrimination whatsoever? Again, B.H. Carroll helps us here. There are some spirits that are from God. There is an inspiration that comes not from God. There is also devil inspiration. Calvin adds again a helpful word, keep the middle path. Examination or discrimination ought to precede rejection, so it must also precede the reception of true and sound doctrines, sometimes even good and pious teachers fail to hit the mark. The word test means to prove, to examine, to put to the test. The New English Bible translates this phrase, try to determine the genuineness. 
And again, note there's a qualifying phrase there, all things. Now, the immediate context is prophecy, but I think it would be a mistake to limit this particular command simply to the application of prophecy and preaching. I believe it is an ever-necessary posture that we are to never let go of in every area of the Christian life, recognizing that truth can so quickly be lost. Now, you might say, well, Danny, in this day and age, is there some kind of test we might apply to be sure or to sure, be sure that we test everything and then as a result of that, hold fast what is good? Well, I, I have four of them that I operate by. One is what I call the Christ test. Does this teaching properly honor and exalt the person and the work of Jesus Christ according to Scripture? Secondly, the Bible test. Does this teaching, is it consistent with the whole of the Bible, or does it require me taking away from a part of the Bible or adding to a part of the Bible? Thirdly, the spirit test. Is this teaching in concert with the expressed desires and ministry of the Holy Spirit who said in John chapter 16, he came to exalt primarily the Son? And then finally, the pastor-teacher test. What have and what do other good, godly, mature students of Scripture say about this particular doctrine? And I believe that will help us greatly live life wisely, which leads then to number seven, keep the good zealously. He simply says at the end of verse 21, hold fast what is good. It means to take hold of and retain, take hold of and keep, take hold of and take possession and do not let it go. Paul in essence is saying God has given us many wonderful and many good things. And again, I don't think he would place any restriction on this command, though I would not neglect the context of where he is saying that. But bottom line, he is saying any good thing that you receive from God, guard it, keep it, and do not let it go. And then number eight, Paul says we are to abstain from evil, completely abstain from every form of evil. Paul used this same word back in chapter 4 and verse 3 where he said that we are to abstain from sexual immorality. And the word form, I believe, has the idea of every sort, uh, every kind, every species of evil. In other words, I think Paul would say very practically, never forget the fact that evil comes in all sorts of sizes, shapes, and forms. Evil is a very complex enemy that, while its essence never changes, it's always seeking new and enticing forms tailor-made just for you. In other words, evil, if I might personify the idea, is always sizing you and me up. So to withstand its perpetual assault and deception requires that we, we are ever ready and ever prepared, and I would again raise the question, how essential is prayer and preaching in assisting you and me from abstaining from every form of evil? Let me close. I believe each of these exercises is essential to making you and me spiritually strong. And I believe when it comes to the assignment of fulfilling the Great Commission, Prayer in particular is absolutely necessary. John Piper is helpful here, and I close with what he says. 
This crucial place of prayer reaffirms that great goal of God to uphold and display His glory for the enjoyment of the redeemed from all the nations. The missionary purpose of God is as invincible as the fact that He is God. He will achieve His purpose by creating white, hot worshipers from every people, tongue, tribe, and nation, and He will be engaged to do it by prayer. Therefore, it is almost impossible to overemphasize the awesome place of prayer in the purposes of God for His world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there is really nothing uh, complex about the passage that we have just examined. Eight commands, eight imperatives, talking about very basic, fundamental exercises of the Christian life. There may be a question or two about a couple of them, but overall, Lord, your word is crystal clear in terms of what you're commanding us to do in anticipation of your coming again. And Lord, I really do believe that all of these are essential, but in particular, prayer and preaching, uh, talking to you and you talking to us, is so essential to the well-being of our soul. Lord, I do not want uh, the issue of prayer to become a stumbling block or a, a, a guilt-ridden weight that crushes us. But Lord, as we heard, I think so well this morning, just out of love for you and a desire for your glory. And Lord, as I said this afternoon, just once again renewing our sweet love for Jesus and recognizing that, yes, he is the Lord, he is the Savior, he is the Master, he is the King, and the one who is all of that is also my elder brother and willing to be my best friend. Lord, as I was growing up, whenever I was with my best friend, I just talked to him all of the time because I just wanted to. Lord, might it be that the Lord Jesus becomes so tender and precious to us that in the same way we would just talk to him all the time simply because we want to. So, Lord, do what only you can do in our lives in this very crucial area, in all these areas, that we might indeed be spiritually strong in the Lord for our good, but ultimately for your glory. And we ask and pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.